Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Mary Wollstonecraft, 1759 to 1797, was one of the most important moral philosophers and political theorists ever. Her writings on liberty and equality have been embraced by thinkers both in her own day and since her early death. Lionized by feminists and demonized by others as dangerous and a loose woman to boot, Wollstonecraft produced a small but powerful, persuasive corpus. But a major aspect of Wollstonecraft's thought is far less well-known, perhaps because it is not about what we all want and assume is our due. True, she was interested in her rights, but in her 2021 book, The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision, Erica Bakioki shows that Wollstonecraft wrote extensively about duties and responsibilities. Further, unlike advocates of free love in later centuries or the champions of the sexual revolution, Wollstonecraft, living as she did in a period when rakes abounded and women often died in childbirth, wrote about chastity and the need for men to behave responsibly and become faithful husbands and loving fathers. Bakioki expands our knowledge of Wollstonecraft and makes her a far more complex thinker than the one-dimensional woman portrayed in feminist lore. Importantly, this book is not only about Wollstonecraft. It also traces how feminism lost touch with the needs of mothers as it became centered on providing as much access to abortion as possible and to equality in the workplace at the expense of a more holistic view of the needs of women of many stripes. Bakioki makes a convincing case that the relentless focus of influential figures like Ruth Bader Ginsburg on abortion rights and advancing the interests of mostly professional women ended up privileging men, and increasingly corporations prefer workers unencumbered by families, in that abortion and contraceptive freed men of any need to refrain from irresponsible sexual conduct. Every feminist, every person really, should read this book because it contrasts the neglected moral vision of Wollstonecraft with the morally compromising Ginsbergian position of predicating the equality of women upon unfettered access to abortion. Bakioki shows that many women's rights advocates and theoreticians up until very recent decades opposed both contraception and abortion on the grounds that both ultimately ended up devaluing the roles of women as mothers and caregivers generally and made becoming pregnant seem careless and not something to be celebrated. A major strength of Bakioki's book is her examination of the work of the legal scholar and human rights expert Marianne Glendon. Glendon has magisterially documented how Ginsburg and her compatriots stripped feminism of its previous foci on the ethic of caregiving and the value to society of hearth and home. Glendon points out that much of modern feminism has left women with rights, but little else in terms of practical or moral support if they happen to be poor or not, say, Supreme Court justices. Bakayoki concludes her book with policy subscription for feminism that is more humane and more representative of the needs of all women and not solely career-obsessed ones. Moreover, the book is not just about women, but in the vein of Wollstonecraft herself, 
about how men and women can work in whatever sphere to create a society where all can flourish. And another important consideration for Wollstonecraft, excel intellectually and morally. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I am talking today with Erica Bakayoki about her 2021 book, The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision. And, and, and Eric, I'll start out by letting you pronounce your name again in case I'm massacring it. No, you did it great. Bakayaki. Bakiaki, thank you. Everyone be patient with me on this because I'm, I'm, I'm working on that. It's, it's a tricky one for me. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Hope, for having me. I'd like to start off with some questions about the main figure in your book, Mary Wollstonecraft, who I discussed just above. Before you answer, I'd like to say that I may not be alone in being one of the women who dismissed her as a slightly embarrassing figure in that just about the same time, 1792, that she published her famous book, Vindication of the Rights of Women, now regarded as a key work in the feminist canon, she got involved in an affair with one of the greatest cads of all time, the American speculator, Captain Gilbert Imlay. He deserted her. <clears throat> he deserted her. She attempted suicide and wrote him letters that are exercises in neediness. To me, she hardly seemed a feminist heroine. And she has been overshadowed by the fact that a child of the later marriage that she gave birth to and died a few later from complications of that process, Mary Shelley, grew up to write Frankenstein. So she was a little bit overshadowed by her, her more famous daughter, or slightly, probably equally famous daughter. I'm slightly embarrassed to say that your book was a revelation to me in rendering Wollstonecraft's importance as a thinker crystal clear. I just really didn't have any idea that she was so important. And I'm very grateful that I know that now as a result of your book. Could you tell us about Wollstonecraft and the tribulations that I just alluded to and the fact that her, the biography of her published by her widower only exacerbated the relegation of Wollstonecraft to the annals of wrong women melodrama? <laughs> what a question to start with. <laughs> I actually, you know, steer clear mainly from her biography because in, in part because, I mean, I do get to it and I try to explain it, but I do try to steer clear because so much ink has been spilled kind of on her biography and almost trying to psych psychologize her from either end, you know, as you say in your intro, either lionize her as, you know, this kind of free love advocate and look at, you know, what she did, um, uh, uh, you know, being with Imlay without being married and all of this. Um, or as, as you know, I say too, uh, as, or scorning her for being this loose woman. And I think, mm -hmm. I think neither of those are quite true. So getting to the context of when she meets Imlay, it's after she's written uh, The Vindication of the Rights of Woman, mm -hmm. which is um, really the central uh, book that my book deals with. Um, she's gone to France, to Paris, to uh, report on the French Revolution. And when she is there, um, she does fall for this man. And, you know, we'll talk about her very high views of marriage and of responsibility, um, sexual responsibility um, that she has articulated already in The Rights of Women. She ends up um, marrying Imlay in uh, in uh, uh, not in truth, but in paper, in the sense that she holds herself out as his wife and he holds her out as his um, wife because as a British woman, she would have um, either been deported or potentially um, you know, her life threatened as a British mm -hmm. woman in France at the time, whereas an American, she was much safer. So that's why that ends up taking place. Mm -hmm. um, I think you know that she would have been interested in an actual marriage to him had the marriage laws of the time uh, not been so unjust to women in terms of um, coverture, you know, all of her uh, personal property, any property she owned, which she wouldn't have at that time, um, but uh, would just go in his name. I mean, I think there was a lot of injustice in how 
marriage um, treated women. And so she was not interested in that. She was interested in really standing up against that. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I will say that importantly, you know, people often think of her as just a woman who wanted, you know, economic independence for women. She did believe very much so in women being able to um, earn a living so that they could enter marriage freely because at her time, because the professions weren't open to women, they were really relegated to either marrying for their mere sustenance or really prostitution. I mean, she was able to Hmm. eke out a living on her own as a writer, um, as one who started a school, as a teacher. So there were some places, but, but, you know, a lot of women didn't have that. And as a governess Um, too, right? And as a governess too, that's right. Which she didn't really prefer just, you know, sort of serving the wealthy who she had a lot of critiques for the (laughs) aristocrats. Um, but that gave her a good insight into the aristocracy. That's right. That's right. It's true. It's true. So, so I think what she ends up doing after she is, has a child by Imlay is relying on his provision for a full year. She doesn't write for a full year. She spends time with that beloved child, Fanny. And when you refer to her love letters, I actually find them quite beautiful. And why is that? You know, if you read them out of context of, of ever reading Vindication of the Rights of Woman, they may seem needy. What it seems to me that she's doing, I don't have any of the love letters before me to sort of read them, but she's calling Imlay to his responsibilities as the father um, of Fanny and as her companion, Mm. um, as Mm. her love. And, you know, she's calling him to the promises he made her, which I think is, um, you know, a beautiful thing. She's calling him to sort of what she takes as the response, his responsibilities in the life that they've made together, um, which she understood and articulated so beautifully in her rights of woman. And so her suicide attempts then from my perspective come from having articulated this really noble um, view of kind of companionship and friendship, fr- you know, uh, a virtue friendship really between men and women in her rights of women, and then having basically fallen for the exact kind of man that she had warned, you know, her readers about mm. um, in Imlay. And I think that that's what causes her um, to really despair and luckily uh, have her life saved. Hmm. Well, uh, speaking of, of, of jumping ahead quite a bit, but in terms of how you discovered Wollstonecraft, was it was it after you got interested in the writings of Marianne Glendon, or was it was it early? Well, actually, would you talk about yourself? You talk you and Marianne Glendon both started out as fairly as as liberal Democrats, and you, you even more so than she. I mean, she was a current <laughs> Kennedy era Democrat, but you were a Bernie Sanders Democrat or socialist, I should say, right? And, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so my background is interesting, and Marianne Glendon does feature prominently in it. Um, I was a women's studies student at Middlebury College in the 1990s. Was very very pro choice. Hmm. Um, and did study Wollstonecraft at that point, but only excerpts of her, which I think really focus on her, you know, uh, desire and articulation of the need for women to have co-equal education with men, which is something, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody kind of sees her as that one. And so we don't really need to read her anymore because, you know, been there, done that. We're all set with women's education, right? Yeah, that's Um, a good point. She's been, we don't, well, we thank you, Mary, Mary, and then we're done with you and we've accomplished what you want. But you say, no, you're missing 99%. That's right. You're missing really the foundational moral vision she had mm-hmm. for why she wanted women's education, why she wanted women to be involved in, you know, civil civil life and have political rights and all of that. So, the, you know, Marianne Glendon was influential because I actually read her book, Rights Talk, which is her most famous uh, book mm-hmm. from the early 1990s in a class I was um, taking. Uh, and it was the first time I'd really read what I would call a communitarian um, feminist vision, um, mm. one which really 
questioned the idea of just leaving women with their kind of right of privacy, especially in the abortion issue, but also with Mm -hmm. regard to kind of, you know, the right to leave marriages, but leaving them with those rights and really nothing else. And she really wanted to talk about the responsibilities, you know, to the child, the father's responsibilities to to children. Did Marianne Marianne Glendon reference Murray Wollstonecraft or was that your own? No, not at all. Not at Hmm. all. No. So that's something that I put those two together myself um, Mm -hmm. much more recently. So Marianne, I followed her work for a long time. She's now become a a mentor of mine. Mm -hmm. And I hope I can say a friend as well. And so I've really been very formed by Marianne for many, many years. And so the book actually started out as a conversation um, between uh, Marianne Glendon's kind of vision of rights and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's vision. Because I had spent a lot of time in law review articles looking at... um, at Ginsburg's um, kind of life's work. And I have sort of a nuanced view of her, I think. Some on the right want to just throw her out entirely uh, mm. as just sort of a witch or something. And then yeah. some on the left <laughs> want to see her as a canoni- you know, canonizable saint. And I kind of take a, a middle view of her. So I kind of wanted to put those two in conversation. But you know, not many people know Marianne Glendon as compared to uh, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so really my view that you know, Glendon comes out better on her vision of rights really wouldn't be of much interest to people. And so I started reading back further because I wanted to get a sense of what really animated their, their, their um, kind of distinct philosophies or theories of rights. And so as I read back but further, is, further is Ginsburg's and Glendon's, that's right. And so as uh-huh. I read back further, it was very clear to me, and it's very obvious in her writings that, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is very animated by John Stuart Mill who is the one in his subjection of women who really becomes kind of the philosopher behind 1970s feminism, as I, I think pretty clearly show in my book. Well, as I push back further and further, you know, Marion Glendon's work is very much animated by a pre-modern understanding of the human person. And so what I found in Wollstonecraft, rereading her much, much later, you know, 20 years after I'd been a woman's studies student, um, is that she too has a real pre-modern understanding of the mm. human person. And so both Marianne and Mary Wollstonecraft bring together kind of a, they're, they're these synthesizers. They bring together kind of a modern um, desire for women's equality and freedom, which of course the ancients didn't have, but then they have an ancient view of the person as one who um, is, you know, ordered toward virtue and wisdom and um, whose life is best lived um, in pursuing moral and intellectual excellence. Is that one reason that maybe modern modern feminists are uncomfortable with Glendon? Is that 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 language of virtue was used against women? I mean, to tie them down. Do they see it as constricting? And oh, we don't vir- virtue was was just was sexism trumped up to prudified sexism, or or is it just that virtue is in general general society is kind of not is not discussed as as embraced as much? It seems fuddy duddy or old fashioned or. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think there's no question. I think the reason why many, you know, feminists don't like Glendon, even if they, you know, will cite her work, her incredible comparative work on rights and all that sometimes. So, they do, it, so they, very, do engage, they do engage her then? Oh, feminists. yes, absolutely. Oh. Yeah, yeah. But it's, but mainly because of her pro-life views. I mean, I think that that would be clear. But in terms, I don't know that she, you know, she doesn't use the term virtue as much as I do. You know, there are mm. other terms you could use, just human excellence, human, uh, you know, human flourishing, um, and I, you know, I want to bring virtue back. Why? Because Wollstonecraft uses virtue and what does she mm. do? And she actually responds exactly to what you were just getting at is, you know, Rousseau had a view of virtue, which was very much kind of 
you know, there's feminine virtue and there's masculine virtue and feminine virtue really is just, well, you can, uh, you know, uh, whittle it down to one virtue and that is really chastity or purity. Mm. And what Wollstonecraft wanted to say is, wait a second, why are we, first of all, focusing on female chastity when it's men who are far more libidinous, far more driven by uh, their, you know, bot- she didn't even know about testosterone, but far more driven mm-hmm. by their kind of bodily desires, their desire for, you know, intercourse and um, it's men who really have this want of chastity that is causing all sorts of problems for women. So she points that out first, but she also says, but women, because they are rational beings, just like men, and this is where she grounds their equality, have mm-hmm. just as much responsibility for developing the whole panoply of virtues that men have. So women should be courageous and women should, of course, be patient and women should develop intellectual virtues, um, of truth seeking. And I mean, she wanted women to be serious and responsible as human beings um, for the ends which she saw um, were the human ends, the authentic human ends for both men and women, which were to develop um, in lives of, um, of, of living excellence in, in sort of all their capacities as husbands and wives, as mothers and fathers, um, and as citizens. And, and, you know, and, and dedicated to the good of others, especially this wasn't kind of a autonomy that is, you know, directed toward my own success, but she really believed that benevolence and imitation of, of the good, um, that she could discern, you know, in God, um, was what all men and women should be aiming towards. So, so really seeking to live lives that were, um, uh, looking toward the good of others. Well, speaking of God, uh, she she's not that part of your book also was a revelation to me because as you know godwin in his autobiography or i don't know if it was in, in that autobiography but in perhaps in letters or some other statement he claimed that that wollstonecraft died an atheist and one scholar i read in preparing for this interview said there's no evidence whatsoever that she was ever an atheist she he was but <laughs> whether she was but i i i have one question about that are feminists modern feminists so is it, in a way, is your book counterproductive because they may modern feminists of the left may say, whoa, we're not signing up for a Wollstonecraft that uses the word chastity. And we're certainly not going to sign up for one that's openly Christian or, or not a Christian so much as, well, I guess she was Christian, devout. But the chastity aspect of it, they may say, what what's what's up with that? <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, you have to, you know, I'm presenting Wollstonecraft, kind of the unsung moral vision of Wollstonecraft. Mm. Um and so you have to read her for what she said. And mm. so, you know, I think that she's a great challenge to many, many different parts of modern feminism. Mm. Um, let me just take some of what you've uh, you've said in turn. So in terms of Godwin, you know, he does claim in his biography that she died an atheist. He doesn't mm. use the word atheist, but he says, you know, on her deathbed, she never, she had no use for, you know, a God who would be present then or whatever. And he definitely thinks of her as sort of, um, a, a woman who found God in nature. I think that's very true. I think that, you know, it's very clear in her biography that she was raised an Anglican, but she had a very difficult, difficult childhood. I think she attended Anglican, you know, service for a long time, but then she's very attracted to her teacher, really probably the most um, form, for, sort of formative uh, intellectual force in her life, Richard Price, who is a Unitarian. Now, Richard mm-hmm. Price, you could call him a Christian deist, although, you know, softer on the Christian in the sense that there's no evidence in his writing that I can find that he ever talks about things like the incarnation or the resurrection. So he's more of, you know, he's more steeped in pre-modern, pre-Christian thought. So he refers a lot to Plato, 
Cicero. And the important part about his thinking is that he's anti-voluntarist. And so she is anti-voluntarist. Well, what does that mean? It's really important that in kind of the Protestant Reformation, there's a swing away from understanding God as the principle of reason, as that our reason participates in God's reason. Um, and there's a swing away from that to a view of God basically is um, that we in being faithful, that Christians in being faithful really just have to be obedient to God's will and that God's will really can be arbitrary, that it can be kind of detached from reason. And so you have this um, move in Calvinism and other strands of, of Protestantism, which is very voluntarist, that you're following God's will, whatever God's will may be, but it doesn't seem to be shored up in reason. The prior account, very Catholic account, and still to today is that you know, re God's reason and will are always one and the same. And that, and that's why, you know, faith and reason for Catholics is so kind of fundamental that they're together. And so that's, she is certainly not a Catholic and she had a lot of critiques of the Catholic church at her time, but there's an, a way in which, you know, when she talks about one's reason submitting to the unerring reason of God, rather than kind of the arbitrary will, she talks about conforming oneself to the nature of things she doesn't have this reductive view of reason that that her kind of fellow enlightenment thinkers had, which is like basically logic, geometry. You know, she really sees reason as open up to the transcendent. And so, yeah, she finds God in nature. She finds God in in um, in, you know, relationships in in what we are called to be and kind of the logic of virtue and the logic of of our familial duties. You know, she sees that being honest and true to those, um, being honest and true to, to our servant, you know, to servants who are, um, share, you know, an equality with us that, you know, as she says, uh, we're not even close to having any equality with God. So she, um, you know, I, I think that that's, that's a real fundamental difference. And it's a, you know, the other thing I would say is that it's a challenge, I think, and if philosophically try to find any way to ground human equality without talking about, us as creatures of God. And those who have tried to do it, I think, end up um, not doing a real good job with it. Right now, you have a lot of postmodern thinkers who basically say that there's no way to ground human equality. It's kind of a noble lie. And we just kind of say it's true, even though look at us, like we're so unequal in all different ways. So I think the way you really can ground equality, really the only way is in understanding ourselves as all creatures of God. And that's exactly how Wollstonecraft does it. So that's the way I would push back sort of at the feminist there is like, tell me how you ground equality other than by assertion. You need to ground it philosophically. The final thing I would say in response to the chastity point is that she's really looking, you know, yes, there was a, a real focus, as I mentioned before, on women's chastity in prior centuries. I mean, even as early as, you know, in our country, um, the, you know, early in the last century. And I would say her focus is really on shoring up male chastity and looking at how, you know, looking at me too, the me too movement, looking at the way that there's sort of a male sexual presumption in our casual, casual sex culture where, you know, of course, we're just going to have sex despite the sexual asymmetries, the reproductive asymmetries that men and women have sex do, you know, the same, same sexual act, but it is women who could potentially be pregnant. who are the ones who have to deal with contraception, who are the ones who have, would have to deal with abortion. Um, who are the ones who have much, you know, who have oxygen, uh, sorry, oxytocin um, and, um, and estrogen running through their veins and so are far more attached during sex. So there's all sorts of ways in which women are now pushing back against this casual sex culture, which I view as incredibly male oriented. And so 
I think she would really answer those kind of qualms that 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 women today are having with um, this casual sex culture that that you know treats basically intercourse as being the be all and end all of 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 intimate relations between men and women, and I think is deeply unfair to women. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say when you write about about Ginsburg that she her her version of equality seems to come down to we want we want to make women basically as much like men as possible in in that abortion equalizes us that somehow that that, that giving the, the the moral approval to abortion because it empowers us as economic actors and it it it, it makes it makes us as irresponsible to be as irresponsible as men in a way that that men can walk away from the, a child, a, a, a baby to come, and that women now can do the same. And it's 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 a very kind of soiling to me, soiling view of women to to predicate our equality on on abortion rights seems so so different from the the picture you paint of Wollstonecraft saying, no, it's it's important that we we be we we should equal rights are so that we excel as moral moral individuals and not so that we become career driven professional women. I mean, she was a professional woman, but to, to formulate in order to advance her moral vision, right? She wasn't a career woman because she, she wanted to be a career woman per se, right? Or Right. I mean, it's kind of this funny thing where, you know, we're all trying to, you know, what I call, try to get kind of market equality, like earn the same wages and earn mm-hmm. the, you know, have the same, you know, same salaries, et cetera, et cetera. And, 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 you know, take the lives of unborn children in order to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, you know, we wonder whether is that making us happy? You know, there's studies that show that women are far less happy now um, vis-a-vis men than they were before the sexual revolution. And so we sort of, you know, we want to ask, is it just because, you know, the sexual revolution isn't, hasn't really gotten us as far as, as we want and we just have to keep pushing, pushing, pushing? Or is there something in the seeds there um, that is just really wrongheaded? So if you think about it, I mean, you can you can think of equality in two ways. You can raise, you can bring women down to kind of, you know, irresponsible men who abandon their children, or you can raise men, ask, you know, men to be raised to kind of a high standard of care, reciprocity and collaboration with women. And that's, that's the way that Wollstonecraft would have seen it. And that's also the way that the first wave, you know, uh, 19, mid 19th century women's rights advocates in our country who followed Wollstonecraft, sometimes explicitly, but often implicitly as well, who said, you know, they really demanded um, that men meet women at this high standard of care. They understood that they had no legitimate authority uh, to take the life of, of, of children in the womb. And so they demanded that they, um, you know, as Sarah Grimke put it, control all preliminaries. They shared with, often with men, but just, you know, despite any differences they had about suffrage, about all sorts of temperance, about all sorts of other things, they universally shared this view of voluntary motherhood, which was... Yeah, I wanted to wonder if you could get into that. I just interrupted you when you were about to, so yeah. sorry. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was no, entirely I mean, new to me. I'd never heard of that particular yeah, term. Yeah, no, it's this, it's this fascinating thing where we, you know, we hear all about forced motherhood today, which is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what I think abortion rights advocates use to describe women who are pregnant and, and because of abortion restrictions would therefore be, quote, forced into motherhood. And, you know, the early women's rights advocates thought of things very differently. You know, they said, yes, women should be voluntarily mothers. But what that meant is that women should be, you know, voluntarily able to engage in sex when and um, with whom they chose and not be forced into sex, even by their husbands and something like marital rape. Right. Mm. And so they understood very well, 
even despite abortion being around, it, it was becoming more available by women like um, Madame Ristel um, uh, in New York City, who, you know, because of, in, you know, sort of improvement in surgical techniques was able to do more abortions. Yeah, that was and an this is, to me too, Ristelism. I had not yeah, heard Yeah, right, Ristelism or whatever. Yeah. And so there's all, there's all this. And, and that's the reason why you see these 19th century uh, uh, laws against abortion. Uh, where states start to take up um, in statutory form and not just, you know, abiding by kind of the old common law, because abortion becomes more, there, there is more abortion happening because of these advances in surgical, surgical techniques. But at the same time, you have these advances in understanding of embryology. We now have, you know, telescopes, um, microscopes, not telescopes, that would be the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. We have microscopes, which are, which are able to help us understand when sperm and, you know, egg unite, there's a new human, you know, new human being. Um, and so there are um, the do- doctors are saying, wait a second, we've got to make sure that we secure, you know, protection for um, these new human beings. And abortion, as they say, is you know entirely destructive of human life. And so, what are the 18th or the 19th century women's rights advocates doing at the time? They're agreeing with the doctors. They're not agreeing with some of their uh, how they talk about women. You know, a lot of the doctors blame women for having mm-hmm. abortions. What the women, what these feminists want to do is, they want to put you know, blame for abortion at the feet of lustful men, sounding a lot like Wollstonecraft in that way. And then they want to say, of course, we have no legitimate right to take the life of our unborn children. But what we want to do is say, number one, we have always a right to say no to sex, even within marriage, right? That that we want to volunteer because sex has such asymmetrical consequences, because we're the ones who bear children in our wombs and, you know, are responsible and well, die. Then for sure, they would die. And re- 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 right, right. We could potentially, yep, potentially have died, or and are responsible for early cha- care, you know, caregiving with in terms of breastfeeding, and of course, just in terms of social norms at that time. Um, that we're the ones who should be the ones who affirmatively decide when to have sex. And so, what they asked of men was chastity. And so, you mm-hmm. have all this, all these women who say, you know, um, the first woman to. Sarah Norton, who pushed for women to be admitted into Cornell University, she talks about, you know, when will the unchastity of men be put on the same level as the unchastity of women, so that, you know, the lives of of the unborn will not be taken. And so uh, Victoria Woodhill, the first woman to run for president of the United States, talks about how the, the, you know, the rights of children begin while they remain a fetus. Um, she talks about how could, you know, women say that they could take the lot, they would never say they would take the lives of their children when they're born, but that's the self same life is taken in abortion, she says. So, I mean, these women were kind of unabashedly what we would say now as pro-life. Did they, were they working for, you know, laws against abortion? They weren't the ones doing it. The doctors mainly were, but what they were working for is this idea of voluntary motherhood. And that included, and this is astonishing to us, it included contraception. Why is that? Well, first of all, there weren't all sorts of great methods of contraception at that point. There were really nascent methods that, you know, didn't work very well and all that. But what these women were trying to get to was trying to see that abstinence was really the way to ensure that they would not become pregnant. Um, The problem is, is that they didn't really understand, as we do today, um, when the best time to abstain is. So, you know, there were failings kind of in science to get to the place where they could really use um, understandings of kind of fertility regulation to be able to have abstinence be a method that would work. And now we, you know, do have methods like that, that do work. Um, And so then, of course, Margaret Sanger comes along, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, and really wants to push for, um, for contraceptive methods, um, 
and really against what these women and why were they against contraception? As you get to that point is because they saw that if you, um, if you separate sex and reproduction, that you're going to really empower men to stray from marriage. You're going to empower men to go visit prostitutes. Mm. And um, that is not going to be good for women. Yes. And you make the point in the book too, that the reliance on contraception or the, this, that, that people, that it also some, in some cases resulted in more abortions because women said, oh, I can just behave as, as promiscuously as I want now that I have the pill. And the pill, of course, was not foolproof. And then there would be an unexpected pregnancy anyway. And then there would be an abortion. And that so it, it was contraception is not always the answer that the left wants to portray it as either. So Right. I mean, that's what's fascinating about that history um, that I lay out in that chapter is that, you know, the, the people who are first aiming for the pill, and this is, of course, Margaret Sanger, but all the population control advocates who, mm. um, you know, she was allied with, they're first very much wanting the pill or any forms of contraception, but they really had their heart set on the pill um, and, and so put a lot of money into engineering that. They want it, um, obviously, you know, to help women not become um, unintentionally pregnant, especially poor women. And there were kind of eugenic elements to this, of course, um, because they were worried about, um, you know, unfit women, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And this is very much in Margaret Sanger's um, view. But they also wanted abortion, sorry, wanted contraception as a prophylactic against abortion. They wanted to make sure that women, and this is Margaret Sanger, you know, she wanted to make sure that women were not um, going and having these dangerous, then very, very dangerous abortions. So she wanted which to tell she, that. Which she'd witnessed herself. And that's right. The, that's the right. And, and so Planned Parenthood in, in its beginnings is, a, is, not a, is not a pro-abortion organization at all. In fact, you know, you have language um, uh, from, from um, uh, Alan Gottmacher, who's, I think, the second president of Planned Parenthood. I may get that wrong, but she, he's, you know, after after um, Sanger, but before um, there's any move for Planned Parenthood to kind of get on the bandwagon of, of legalizing abortion. And what he says is, when an abortion is easily obtainable, contraception is neither actively nor diligently used. And so that's what's fascinating mm. in this history is that you, you know, you try to have contraception in order to prevent abortion. But what happens is that, yes, as you say, there's this, um, increase in sexual risk taking that happens as a result of contraception, because there's this kind of new, you know, new idea that we have total control over reproduction. And so we can start to have sex, not only, you know, more sex within marriage, but also sex outside of marriage. But as you say, the pill and really no form of contraception is foolproof is 100% effective. And so as you have increases in sexual risk taking, you also have more sex outside of marriage. And so not more non-marital uh, births taking place. And so then there's this move for more, you know, for legalizing abortion. Why? Because those same people, you didn't want to be having, you know, children, the poor, the unfit, according to the population control kind of eugenic um, uh, act you know, actors are now having children out of wedlock more even than, than, than before. I mean, you see this giant um, rise. I mean, go find the graph that shows 1960, you have 5% of children out of, uh, you know, out of wedlock, 40% um, of children um, out of wedlock in about 1975 or so. So it's this giant increase. And, you know, economists show this is really due to um, you know, the pill and, and abortion, uh, joining arms and, and, and making, you know, detaching sex from reproduction. Um, and so, you know, what's the answer to, you know, that the, that the early, uh, uh, you know, American women's rights advocates would say is, well, 
let's reduce sexual risk-taking. And the first way I would say is that you do that by restricting abortion. So at least people are more serious about what the sexual act is. They realize that a human being could be born of the, or could be, you know, conceived of this act. And so they can become more serious about it, whether that's using contraception or, um, you know, using forms of, of fertility regulation of other kinds. Um, that would seem to be, you know, the way to, the way to go at it at this point. Well, that is very helpful. I'm going to, I'm going to jump back a little bit back to Wollstonecraft for just, a moment. I, I jumped ahead of myself by several, a century or so, but I wanted to say, what is, what is Wollstonecraft's standing in academia now and which of her texts are assigned and by whom I'd like to ask, is she assigned, is she mainly assigned to women's studies courses? Is she taught in philosophy classes? Is she contrasted in political theory courses with Edmund Burke and in philosophy once with Rousseau? Where was she taught or was she taught across yeah. the board? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, so she is now considered, I would say, a canonical thinker. She in, um, in, in political theory or just yeah, in political theory. So, you know, for a long time, she was really just taught in women's studies. And as the women's studies movement, you know, departments got more radical, I would say probably, you know, fell off from there for sure. Um, because if you read her in full, well, you come up with some of the stuff that I've sort of resurrected of her work. But um, I would say, yeah, she's more of a canonical thinker. And she is, you know, so someone like an Eileen Bodding at Notre Dame has put her in conversation with both Burke and John Stuart Mill in a really, I think, um, helpful way. Um, and, and people are, there's, you know, what, what we see is that with the rise of women um, entering, you know, into uh, political theory departments and then getting PhDs in political theory and in philosophy, you're seeing a lot more interest in uh, Wollstonecraft's thought. And then you also have um, more women who, uh, and men too, are studying Wollstonecraft who have a better grasp of pre-modern philosophy. And so you are seeing some corroboration for the views that I have, that she is very much steeped in more of a pre-modern understanding of, of friendship, of um, the human person, of virtue. Um, and so they want to, you know, look at her as uh, being influenced by, well, certainly Richard Price, but his influence of Plato, Cicero, Aristotle. Um, and so you do see some of that. Not as much as I would like to see. I actually teach a course um, in the summer called Man, Woman, Body, Soul in the Western Tradition. And um, we start with Plato and we go up through all the way, actually through kind of Judith Butler. Um, but she is a real central part of that course. Um, we contrast her with, uh, with Rousseau, um, with uh, uh, Locke and Hobbes in terms of on, on rights. Um, and it's a real, it's really, it's a really fun course to teach because she is, um, has so much to say about so many different issues. Yeah. I was going to say that in your book, you make clear that she's really this, this an era straddling figure that her, 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 you make the point that she, she, her own intellectual foundations were in, in the classical view in some, in many ways. And then, but she's an enlightenment figure in that she goes to the French revolution. And then she's also sort of a pre romantic because she believes in nature, sort of the Wordsworthian view of, of, of Nate, you were discussing her view of that, that things, things can be a natural way of viewing the soul and that seems very and then she's a proto-modern because she's obviously talking about rights which is a very john mill you know 20th 20th century view so she's quite interesting in that mm -hmm. could you talk about yeah. could you talk yeah. about her relationship to john stewart mill i know she or she's she's more famous for her her interactions with i mean her response to burke but not so much well obviously mill was after her death but right yeah, no, I think that that's the key is Mill is, you know, after her and um, 
is um, is one who really I think is the cause of her being seen as less important than she was. And why is that? Because I think, first of all, Mill is, his writing is much, much clearer than her. So if you pick up Subjection of Women, you can get through it really, really easily. It's um, very straightforward, very systematic. Um, and so I think, you know, people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but even before that, like an Elizabeth Cady Stanton, as soon, you know, she reads him and he is very influential on her. She's probably the most radical, one of the most radical of of those um, 19th century women's rights advocates who I think starts to take them in a million um, uh, a way, uh, which is very different from Wilson Craft. So, you know, you could say, oh, the two both wanted rights. They both wanted women's education. They both thought that you wouldn't really understand women's nature until women really um, had an education on par with men. Right. That's all true. Um, but the but the reason, the rationale, especially their understanding, I would say, of both liberty and equality is so distinctive that what I try to do is draw out these two two threads in um, women's rights thinking. One is very Wollstonecraftian and one is very Millian. So the Millian view, which again, I say, I think starts, well, obviously with Mill, but then very much in our country with Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Hmm. Liberty is kind of seen as its own end, that the point of liberty is really for, as he says, individuality, for kind of individual creativity. Um, and for Wollstonecraft, it's quite different. Liberty is very much a means. So she thought liberty was incredibly important, to be sure. There's no question about that. But she saw it as a, as a means to fulfill our duties and to reach an end. So if, whereas, you know, for Mill, there's sort of more of a self-chosen end. For mm -hmm. Wollstonecraft, there is an end that human beings all have. It's a common end um, as, you know, creatures who are created by God and responsible to God. And that our end is really the fulfillment of our duties of state. So our duties as first as rational creatures. To, so to, you know, ensure that we're, um, you know, being educated both intellectually, but then morally that we're, that we're mastering our appetites. She sees us very much as, you know, Plato or the ancients did as being these, um, you know, persons who are, should be rightly ordered with reason governing our appetites. Um, she saw duties in the family to be incredibly important, you know, and to be something that really um, is constitutive of the person that creates really who the person is. And she saw all of that as, as leading us to become those virtuous, you know, benevolent, benevolent pers persons that I talked about earlier. And then the unequality, I would say they're very different too. So for Mill, there's more, I mean, at the very beginning of Subjection of Women, he talks about a perfect equality, admitting of no kind of privilege on the one side or burden on the other. And what she would say is that you can't have a perfect equality because of reproductive difference. That, um, of course, you know, what you really want to do is show the privilege that women have in being those who potentially can be mothers and, you know, are uh, off very often um, mothers, but then the privilege of fathers as well. And then the burdens that are more difficult for women, right, because of those asymmetries I talked about before and the burdens of caregiving, too. Um, and so that's why at the end of the book, I get to why it's so important for kind of our libertarian tending nation to be ensuring that we make sure that we're, you know, care, making sure that families have support they need for those kinds of burdens that they take on. So I think that they have a very different view. You know, you can't have a strict equality, the strict equality that Ginsburg as a million 
sort of wanted um, for women and men is just not possible because of these reproductive asymmetries. The way Ginsburg wanted to get to it um, was, as we talked about, through abortion by making, you know, women and men, um, women as equally capable of kind of um, escaping unintended pregnancy. But by doing what? Well, through private killing. Well, men don't have Mm -hmm. to do that. You know, that's not an equality that men, you know, it's, it's, um, it's kind of the, the equality of autonomy, as I talk about. Um, it's, you know, being equally autonomous and women when they're pregnant are not autonomous. They're carrying a, a child who's dependent upon them. And so it makes them more dependent on others. Um, and that's an important feature, um, that we can't forget, you know, and when we do, we kind of relegate dependency and vulnerability, um, to this kind of, uh, a place we don't want to talk about. We don't want to bring it into the, you know, public conversation. Um, we don't want to admit it because it makes women seem less than, oh no, you know, women have share, share this incredible dignity with men, um, but have this privilege of being able to carry a child. And so let's support women in doing that. And let's make sure that they're not abandoned by the men who impregnated them, you know. Well, at this point, I just want to remind listeners that we are talking today with Erica Bakioki about her book, The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision. And Erica, you were just talking about whether the idea that that Wollstonecraft might have argued, if I understood what you were saying, that there really isn't, there can't be true equality or it's, or, or well, I mean, maybe I'll, I'll rephrase my question to say, in your book, there's a wonderful section to, that examines the, the, the views of the labor activist Florence Kelly versus the views of Alice Paul. And Florence Kelly, well, why don't you why don't you explain it? I, I'm always I'm I'm always summarizing what you're saying instead of what you're saying. <laughs> but, yeah, so this is this is a fun you know one of my favorite chapters in the book um, because especially as a lawyer and a constitutional law scholar, it's one that you know constitutional law scholars don't really know about these women who are behind the men during the Lochner era, mm. and so. Lochner is this really infamous um, case in 1902 um, where um, the the Supreme Court strikes down state regulations that would limit the hours bakers work um, because of what they say is liberty liberty of contract. And so they basically raise liberty of contract, which is a common law principle, um, uh, and and a, you know an esteemed one in our in our uh, tradition, but they raise it to a constitutional right, which acts as a trump against this kind of um, what we used to call police powers legislation, which mm. is the state's capacity to legislate on the basis of um, protecting you know uh, the people in their jurisdictions' well-being, health, uh, even morals. Um, and so the state had gone about you know making sure trying to to you know limit the hours that bakers could work so that. The industrial capitalists at that time, this is very much in the you know the heat of the industrial revolution, could not take advantage of those with far you know less um, equal kind of bargaining power. And so you have um, Florence Kelly, who is very much against this decision, and Alice Paul, who is much more famous than Florence Kelly uh, as as being you know one of the chief drafter of the Equal Rights Amendment as very much being in favor of the Lochner opinion. She, she thought that kind of raising liberty of contract to this constitutional right would be um, at some point better for women. And she wanted women to be on this equal playing field as workers in the industrial um, workplace. And Florence Kelly was a labor advocate and had a great following. Um, and she was, both women were incredibly well-educated um, 
Well, Florence Kelly said, you know, you if you rate if you if you just talk about liberty of contract, you're really giving way to a legal fiction. And it's a legal fiction we now understand very well in terms of economics that there is this unequal bargaining power between kind of the capitalist and the employee. Mm. Um, but she says this is especially acute when it comes to women, because women um, as mothers um, uh, who are basically being forced into the workforce um, ha- are having to succumb to these horrible industrial um, conditions. But not only that, men at that point had labor unions that were, you know, becoming stronger and stronger and so could potentially enact for themselves the kind of safeguards that they needed up and against the capitalists. Well, women didn't have these labor unions. So she was arguing for protective labor legislation, at least for women. She also wanted it for men, too. So she was very much a precursor to, you know, the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, that FDR pushes through at the beginning of um, the next century, but sh- or sorry, at, later in that century. Um, but but she really uh, is eager to see as kind of this what she calls an entering wedge um, to to try to push um, uh, the court, especially to recognize to allow these state laws um, that limit women's uh, hours, and then at some point um, that allow for minimum wages for women as well. So there's this great debate between. Florence Kelly and Alice Paul. Florence Kelly very much on the side of kind of um, women who are, you know, members of families who have responsibilities in the home. Um, and, you know, for those fathers who had the same, whereas Alice Paul kind of thinking more of a strict equality between men and women in the workplace as hoping, you know, to get professional women um, to, you know, kind of attain the sorts of things that they could um, as equals of men. So it was this great, a great debate that, um, really lays the foundations for lots of what you'll see later too, um, as we get to anti-discrimination law in later chapters um, and debates that women had about, um, you know, how much uh, women should be kind of protected in the workplace versus being strictly equal. Would you say that Marianne Glendon is a descendant, uh, an intellectual descendant of Florence Kelly in that? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, th- I, I sort of see the line going from you know, Wollstonecraft to um, people like Frances Willer during the suffrage era, uh, but also a bit Susan B. Anthony too. She had elements of, of Wollstonecraft and then through Florence Kelly um, up through um, uh, uh, Marion Glendon. And then on the other side, you have, you know, John Stuart Mill, Elizabeth Cady Stanton um, up through Alice Paul and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so, you know, there are elements, I, I certainly do not uh, demonize any of them. I think that there are elements of truth that you find in that million, um, that million line. Um, but I think in the end, those elements that are true are already part kind of constitutive of, of the Wollstonecraftian vision, which is basically just the idea that, you know, women and men are equally rational creatures and capable of, of reasoning and, and, um, you know, intellectual excellence, just as, just as much as men. Well, on, on that note about the, the marketplace, I'd like to, to delve a little, try to connect Glendon to the modern era, too, and, and most, well, Florence Kelly, because, uh, well, I'm not sure if Florence Kelly would come into this. You, you, can, you can decide, but in, in, the, in the recent Texas abortion, anti-abortion law in Texas, that many corporations have, have kind of have jumped into abortion in a way they haven't before. They're starting to say um, Lyft and Salesforce and so forth, but you write that mainstream, this is from your book, mainstream feminism promotes a view of freedom as autonomous choice 
manifest most plainly the popular abortion rights slogans right to slogan right to choose parenthood is increasingly viewed as one lifestyle among one lifestyle choice among many and for mothers an opportunity cost at that the value of children and other dependents are too often subject like other trade-offs in the marketplace to individual or social cost-benefit analysis and you also write of um i'm quoting again the duly unencumbered autonomous self so prized in the good life of our modern capitalist society and i think that Kelly and Blendon both talk about, well, how, how would you say that they would, would see the, the modern woke corporation saying, you know, abortion's really great because then we have employees that aren't, we don't have to bother about them having children because if, if we make abortion accessible, then that's not so, not, not, not a problem for us. Is, or is that just too sinister a reading? <laughs> well, that's my reading. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, you know, they, yeah, I mean, they kind of go, well, there's all sorts of ways in which they go woke, but they think, you know, there's certainly a really strong uh, feminist um, prizing of abortion on demand um, for women to be able to be, you know, equal um, kind of market earners with women. I mean, you are with men, you know, you even see um, those who call abortion like an economic right. Um, mm. That's my Senator Elizabeth Warren talked about it as an economic right. And I think it's very much exactly along these lines is that it's, you know, seeing women as needing to be like these unencumbered men who, um, you know, can work at all hours uh, and be like cogs in the, in the machine of, of um, corporations. And so, of course, I mean, we don't want children around. We don't want children with we don't want families with responsibilities to children that obviously should kind of be more important than, um, than their, than their work because, well, they're vulnerable and they're the ones who are, you know, supremely responsible for them. So what both Florence Kelly and Glendon really got, um, and, you know, get, uh, Glendon's still writing and doing incredible work now, mm. um, is that there are these important preconditions to a market economy, to a democratic republic, um, and those take place in the family. That is that there are um, really important virtues um, and solidarities that happen in the family. And without taking those seriously, then we will crumble as both a republic, but also be unable to function in terms of a market economy. I mean, what's necessary? Well, you need honest relations. You know, you need trustworthy people. You know, you need um, fair-minded people. You need people with a whole slew of other types of virtues in order to engage in the marketplace. And that happens in the family. And so it's not that the family is instrumental. No, no, not at all. The family is where people, you know, ha begin to have a sense of their identity, that they're loved um, uh, unconditionally and not just for what they produce or what they consume, you know. Um, and so all that takes place in the family. And so there are these familial preconditions um, to the market. And so the market should always... Um, be understood as, well, I would say parasitic upon the family, but also as um, requiring uh, a healthy families in order to, um, you know, to flourish. There's a great line that Jane Adams, you know, Nobel laureate who mm. created Hull House, who is a contemporary of um, Florence, Florence Kelly, um, yeah. Kelly. And she talks about the family claim needs to be uh, take precedence over the social claim. And I really think that that's absolutely right, um, that, you know, it's not so that the lives of, of women who worked in the industrial workplace at Florence Kelly's time, um, who were basically leaving their children um, with no care, uh, leaving them kind of in these shanty homes in order to go work in the mills, 
you know, they're not really so different from women, poor women today who, you know, you hear of these horrible stories where women have no capacity to take time off of work. And so they are required to like go back to work days after or only weeks after having, you know, having given birth. They have to throw their children into um, into kind of these institutional daycare um, which they, you know, where their children don't fare well, their, you know, increased depression for a lot of these, you know, some women who have to do this to their children because they just need to make ends meet. They've been yeah. abandoned by, abandoned by, you know, the fathers of the children. There's so much fatherlessness. Um, and so I think all of those things, there is a resemblance between these two times. And so, you know, we live in this very libertarian con- country. And I think sometimes, you know, especially increasingly the feminist have really joined arms with these, as you say, these work woke corporations to kind of, I mean, you see this in the Biden, the Biden uh, family plan, mm-hmm. um, where he talks about, you know, let's make sure we can get women, keep women in the workforce. You know, yeah, he talks exactly. about increasing labor force participation, boosting economic growth, gender equity. And you wonder like, well, where are the kids? Well, let's just put them into daycare. And that's mm-hmm. what we want daycare for. Instead of saying, why not make the family and healthy families and what children need and children need time with their mothers and their fathers Mm. and making that the priority and having the market and, and the uh, workplace serve the families and not the other way around. And I think that's really the way to go. And yet we have, you know, all these gender equity people Mm -hmm. (laughs) who really kind of um, see market equality as kind of the best, the, the sort of, you know, the, the most important thing, they'll talk about fathers being involved um, in the home, but a lot of them just want that in order for women to kind of have equality in the workplace. And I say, no, fathers should be involved in the home for their own good, for their children's good. And yes, for their, for their you know, um, the mother of their children, the wives um, as well. So, you know, I think people really have it backwards where we, capitalism has kind of um, taken over how we think about all human relations and we forget about the importance of the importance, the real crucial, essential uh, character shaping, culture forming work um, that takes place in the family. See, I was going to say that that I was as a single childless woman, working woman who is not a, like you, a mother with and a, there were times when I've thought I'm, I would bridle. I, you had a passage in the book about that, that veterans that the, the fam that family fa- female parent parents should be treated with possibly the same level of of benefits as a veteran because they're doing a, a, a comparable service and I thought well as a single woman I bridled at that I thought wait a minute I I don't want I don't think that's fair to, to for you know because that that, that I, I would think would be discriminatory to me but then I thought not necessarily because as you say there's this the hidden the hidden benefits I get as a single person from the work that mothers do they're raising the the physicians that I will use <laughs> when I'm an older person or they're raising the teachers that or they're raising the people that become the teachers and the caregivers later on but so I, I was yeah. I, I, I was I thought well because you talk about the, the danger of if you if you like you and Glendon both believe in benefits to families in the workplace. And my reaction was, I'm not sure about that. I, I found it, I found it, sometimes I found it intrusive to have family, to have the, my employer treat me, you use the language of, of family. I thought, this is, you're not my family. My family is my family. Not, not. Yeah, no, it's funny how the workplace wants to try to use that language so that, mm-hmm. you know, can't you see we're a family here mm-hmm. for you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't need your other family, your, you know, your real family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that that can, you're right, that there's a, 
a way in which they can, you know, do that. And then we can start thinking about the home as really kind of like a market where we're just, you know, producers and especially consumers. And that's the whole point is we're raising children to be, you know, the next generation of consumers. You know, do you have the right iPhone? Do you have what all your friends have? Do you, you know, what, what kind of television are you watching? Consume, 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 consume. And we then are basically thinking of people as these, what are human beings then? Oh, they're consumers, you know, who make money and then consume. And it's a really sad kind of um, anorexic view of what a human being is. And so one of the reasons parenting, I think, is so important. And if we could really focus on this instead of, you know, getting that, you know, getting all, you know, mothers and fathers back to work so that we can boost, you know, the economy, we can say instead, you know, what is it that families do that should be doing um, in order to have healthy children um, in order to then have kind of noble leaders. I mean, wouldn't we like to see some honest, <laughs> noble leaders <laughs> instead of the ones that we're left with, you know? Um, and so, right, parents are doing, you know, important, important work, not only um, in raising children, be able to kind of participate in the economy or as citizens, but to be friends, you know, with other people, to, um, you know, develop the kind of virtues of sharing, of truth-telling, of generosity, of patience, of um, justice, you know, all these sorts of things that happen in the family. And so my, my point to your point about, you know, being a single, single mother is just, or single woman is just that parents shouldn't be economically disadvantaged mm -hmm. by raising children. And so it's not so much that they should be on a different footing because they're doing something so much better than you are, you know, you're contributing in an important way too. It's more that because of raising children, they are uh, taking on massive financial burdens that single people aren't doing. Mm -hmm. And so because the work they're doing is for all of us, as you say, you know, they're creating all these people who are going to be doing this, this um, important work, but also because they're, you know, creating human beings who hopefully are fully human, who can be friends to others and, and take part in all sorts of different, um, you know, institutions in our society that they shouldn't be economically disadvantaged. So I want to just put them on an equal playing field in some sense. So I want to help support them so that, you know, they're not, um, they're not kind of taking such a cut by having to by when they raise children. And that's, that's sort of my view. I mean, there's a lot of talk in feminism about how when a woman becomes a mother, you know, she disadvantages herself in terms of earnings and all of that for life. Well, I would say there's a great advantage she's getting by having children, you know, uh, who can potentially support her in her old age. Yeah, exactly, and, exactly. And all of that, right? Right. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, there is something um, that that women and men who are parents are doing for all of us. And so is there a way that we can help them, especially when they're doing the hard work um, when the children are young and when they have more caregiving that takes them away from being able to earn money for them. And so it's it's more of putting them on a level playing field. It's more of like spreading the costs of child raising across society a bit better so that the parents who are taking on all those burdens that are emotional, that are, you know, in terms of sleep deprivation, in terms of all sorts of other things, <laughs> um, are not economically uh, disadvantaged by by raising children. Could you talk about getting back to, to Glendon and the, the concept of dignitarian feminism? Yes. So I do at the end. I mean, I, um, I, I try to uh, basically resurrect a term that Glendon used one time in her writing, which I think is um, 
kind of a, a really beautiful one. It's hard to kind of, you know, you try to name feminism in the hopes that it'll catch catch fire. Well, dignitarian feminism is never going to catch fire. It's too, <laughs> it's too long of a term. But the reason why I think it's important is because I think both she and Wollstonecraft, and I think some of these other characters in between the two, really lay out kind of two views of human dignity. You know, we talk a lot about human dignity and equal dignity. And, and I think there's two ways in which they use the term. It's kind of a hor- in a horizontal way and in a vertical way. And so we're used to talking about dignity kind of on a horizontal um, frame, right? Where we're all equal in dignity. And as I said before, good luck finding ways of, um, of grounding that philosophically without, um, without you know, at least positing, um, uh, you know, a creator who created all of us um, as we do in the Declaration of Independence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but so there's basically a basic dignity that, um, is by virtue of just being human. So regardless of our sex, our race, our socioeconomic status, our situation of dependency, like it really is the surest foundation of human rights. And which is why I think that, you know, the human beings, um, that are not born yet that are residing in their mother's wombs also, um, you know, have that dignity too, just by virtue of being in the class of human beings, um, and then there's this second kind of what I say a vertical sense, but it's an older sense. So that first sense you could say is either Christian or even more of a modern. You could kind of see it in some Kantian understandings of equality or dignity. Um, I don't think that works as well, um, but certainly that sort of horizontal view is there. But the but the older view of dignity is um, in this sort of more aspirational sense, and that is this idea of that we have this shared human capacity to strive for excellence. So dignity like like, uh, dignitas, noble, nobility, you know, it's not nobility as it was in the ancient sense in kind of status. It's nobility just in our status as a human being. Why? Because of the human, the kinds of beings we are, that is beings with ends, which direct us to toward moral and intellectual excellence. So it's dignity in the sense of of like trying to achieve something higher for ourselves. And so that's why you can say someone lives according to their high dignity Um, Mm -hmm. because as human beings, we're not brute animals, you know, and that's one of Wilson Craft's key points that I really lay out in, in the first chapter of the book that she distinguishes human beings from brute animals because brute animals just move according to their appetites and their desires. And she says, no, no, we have reason. We've been given reason. And we need to ensure that we're living according to this highest principle in us and having reason guide our appetites rather than, you know, having reason be kind of a slave of the passions and just rationalizing whatever our passions want. Um, and, and so I think that's where the dignitarian feminism comes in is in these two different elements, two different kind of types of dignity. Yes, I was going to say that one of the blurbs or one of the endorsements of your book that I thought was an interesting sort of contradiction that it referred to Wolf, that you, that, that you, they credited the, the, the author of the blurb credited you with laying out Wollstonecraft's ennobling and liberating moral vision. I thought to myself, that's an interesting, almost contradiction because ennobling is you're striving for virtue and being a virtuous person. Whereas liberating is I'm breaking free from the obligation to be noble. <laughs> Well, that's actually an interesting point. That is a very modern understanding of liberty that you've just articulated. And that's very much Mill's understanding and really the Enlightenment idea is that liberty is being free of external constraints and of obligations. And it really, um, we see it especially in Thomas Hobbes. But actually, the ancient view of liberty is very much in line with, with, with living nobility. So it's basically that we are most free 
when we are not we are not kind of possessed by our passions. We have the freedom that that reason gives us by being um, basically a constraining our passions or mastering our passions or disciplining our passions because otherwise we're slaves to our passions and the ancients did not see this as a good thing. You know, when you're slave to a passion, I mean, think of an alcoholic or a drug addict or mm -hmm. any other kind of addict who is a slave to their passions. And so for Wollstonecraft as well as the ancients, and this is why I see her very much as um, kind of constant with pre-modern thought is that she saw liberty as both kind of this modern sense of liberty as um being free from kind of, you know, uh, the political constraints of, say, an aristocracy or something, um, being free to participate in education as a woman, um, being free from, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the property kind of distribution of aristocracy, those kind of modern freedoms, right? But then she also very much understood freedom um, in this ancient sense, which is, again, being free um free to basically do the good that, that we are kind of called to do being free to, as she would say, kind of do our duties. Um, and that's, that's virtue and freedom in line together um, because we want to be free from the slavery of passions. And so it's, it's a very, I mean, if I could just push it a little bit further, there's um, a great uh, image that Plato gives us in his Phaedrus that I, that I quote in the book and I show kind of a quote of Wilson Craft that really, is very um, parallel to it, where where Plato talks about how you know the charioteer who is riding um, with uh, two horses, he is you know the charioteer is reason and he's governing the horses, which are his passions. And um, in the modern view, we kind of let those horses free, we let the passions free, and we kind of just erect laws to prohibit the passions from doing you know being destructive to other human beings when. Um, really a much better account is I think that that pre-modern view where, you know, we are responsible for disciplining our passions um, so that we can be free to love others so that we can be free to be those benevolent human beings that Wollstonecraft thought that we were all um, called to be all made to be, you know, imitating, imitating um, the benevolence of God. Well, on the note of freedom, we're getting towards the end. I promised I would let you go fairly soon because you're a busy person, but I wanted to say that I'd like to read this passage about freedom from the book that I think is wonderful, that it makes clear that your the value of your book as a work, uh, it's really a, a wonderful hybrid of a book. It's intellectual history. It's, it's at the end, it's a, a bit of a pol policy prescription and a bit of a polemic, which is fine because it's, it's, it's an important argument you're making. But uh, in terms of the history, you, you talk about the value of history and setting someone like Wollstonecraft and you, you say, Older conceptions of freedom have simply been forgotten or have been discarded unfairly with contemporaneous historical ideas and practices that modern day feminists rightly have judged unjust. But historical insights need not be appropriated with all the coincident conditions that accompany them historically. Wisdom can transcend time and place and serve as a course corrective, course correction if we allow it to do so. And I think that you make a really good argument for reading Wollstonecraft as, as an important course corrective to some of the excesses of, of modern feminism. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time and now I'd like to ask you the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Well, right now I am working... Um on a law review article, which will um, try to uh, flesh out this Wollstonecraftian view of rights as, mm -hmm. um, as really needed to fulfill 
kind of pre-existing duties um, and, and what that means for questions like abortion um, or even questions in family law. So I want to, you know, this book has been, I, I sort of started doing, you know, law review articles. I did a big intellectual history with some, you know, lots of constitutional law. And I think it's worth um, uh, looking at um, uh, how this kind of rights theory um, can really start to inform, better inform um, how we think about these kinds of questions in the law. Well, I, I'm sure that will be a great contribution, as this book certainly is. I'm very grateful. I read every word of it. I read it to the absolute last index entry. It was just wonderful. And I just I really hope it sparks a conversation. I think it is. I think you're getting I've, I've already heard podcasts, w uh, interviews with you and lectures by you. And I encourage listeners to 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 uh, search your name and find those. And also you're on Twitter, which is very useful to see what you what you are working on now to keep track of what you're reading and what you're thinking about. And with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Erica Bakioki, about her 2021 book, The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you, Hope. Thank you.